Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today is one of the best basketball players to come out of Canada. Definitely one of the most memorable stories you'll hear. Carl English learned the game of basketball with a hoop made out of a bicycle rim, and the spokes punched out. It's kind of what you did in small-town Newfoundland back in the 80s. Nobody had ever come from there to make it to the NBA, or March Madness, or the Canadian national team, or half a dozen stops in Europe. Carl English did all of those things and more, and overcame some of the longest odds you might imagine. It's the subject of his new book, Chasing a Dream, co-authored by Blake Murphy. Here's his story. I want to start with a snapshot from 2007. It's Las Vegas, you're there with Team Canada, it's the FIBA Americas group stage, and you're in the starting lineup against USA and matched up against Kobe Bryant. I mean, <laughs> what is he like to guard? <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was a pretty interesting preparation to get ready for a team like that when you got some of the greatest players that ever played the game. And obviously when I'm matching up against uh, Mamba himself, it was uh pretty amazing, but at the same time I was nervous, uh scared, all the all the normal things that you would have come into a, a game, but then let's multiply those by 100 because you're playing guys like this and the part for me that made it even more, I say, fear of failure. This was an opportunity as well for me to showcase my talents from coming from overseas, playing and trying to catch the eye of some NBA uh, NBA decision makers and teams, right? Mm-hmm. So all that stuff plays on your mind. So the first time we played him was was pretty crazy. Um, there's a couple of stories in my book, but one that was was crazy was uh, Kobe guarded the best guy on the other team, and he basically face guarded me. So wherever I went, he just followed me, and he had me by my right arm and was clinching it, and I'd knock it away, grab it again. But the whole time in my ear, he was like a train, and he'd go, as I ran harder, he would do his choo-choo faster. Yeah. So it was, it was easiest these mind tricks and everything. And the second year we played them, I had a much better outing and was more mentally prepared. And I started talking some smack with him as well. And you know, on some of the videos I posted on social media, you can hear the commentators. Me and him really got after it and got after each other in that game. So that was the second time around. Was let's just say it was a lot more enjoyable than the first. But it was it was one of these moments that are kind of surreal. And then you look back on it, and even when I put up some pictures now, my kids are like, "That's Kobe. You play Kobe, Dad." I'm like, "Yeah, buddy." So it was, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's something that will last uh, last a lifetime. Carl, let's let's take it back to the beginning because uh, you've got quite the basketball story. You mentioned you've got a book out there, Chasing a Dream with Blake Murphy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anyone who plays the game has got to start somewhere, but not many were coming from Newfoundland when you were coming up. Can you give me a sense? Where's where's home for you? Where'd you grow up? I grew up on uh, uh, Placentia Bay out Route 100. It's a very small town and I was originally born in Branch, but then I moved to Patrick's Cove after my parents died. So I lost my, I lost my parents when I was when I was five years old in a house fire. Um, me and my brothers got separated with different aunts and uncles, um, but then I moved to Patrick's Cove, which had a town of about fifty people, right on the Atlantic Ocean. Very harsh winters, and you know I, I grew up right on I grew up right on the water and. 
you know, in a very, very small, small community. It's not even a town, it's a community. So you blink your eyes and you're passing through it. Uh, so yeah, that kind of small, very small community. Uh, it was 1986, you mentioned that house fire, uh, yeah. five years old when that happened. And and so you and your brothers all sent to live with, with different aunts and uncles. Uh, what, what are Junior and Betty like? You're, you're put to live uh, with them. Well, I, I live with the uh, Aunt Betty's my... Uh, is my mom's sister and uncle junior um was her husband and i moved in with their family um they were amazing i mean did everything possible to to help me fit in and, and adjust from everything i was dealing with and going through and i had a whole new family there i went to the same school as three as my three of my other brothers and one was a couple hours away in the in the city and never really got to see him much only on christmas or something like this till we got older so yeah, it was obviously an adjustment to say the least. I mean, you're you're growing up dealing with the loss of your parents and then separation from your brothers and and just trying to battle and get through life. So it was uh it was definitely uh something that will make you stronger, but there was a lot of lonely lonely nights there as well and then you know, it was just the this was just my journey. Mm-hmm. What's your first memory with the basketball? I started that at a young age in school. Um, everybody was playing hockey. I played hockey as well. But when you grow up in these small towns, like there was no ice rinks or nothing, the closest ice rink was about 45 to an hour drive away at least. Um, so we didn't have hockey on that. We grew up playing hockey on the ponds and things. And that was always enjoyable. And we played a lot of street hockey, but my passion was always basketball. And even at an early age, I mean, I, I had my first hoop on the shed and it was just a bucket, cut the bottom out of a bucket. <laughs> it was The next one was a bicycle rim. We beat the spokes out of a bicycle rim. And then it just kept changing and getting better. And then we got our first hoop for a Christmas gift, I think, when I was like 10, maybe. Mm-hmm. So grade, you know, grade three or, or grade four or five. And then I just, you know, I just had that passion. And then I think I started to be, you know, decent at it. And obviously when you are a bit successful at something, you, you, you don't mind uh, working harder at it. And then I always, with our school, our school was very small, sort of a lot of different rules and regulations, but our school is from grade kindergarten to 12, only had 200 kids. So less than, less than 20 kids per grade. So you'd always get a chance to play up and play with the older kids. And that helped a lot with my development because I was always playing against older kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then I just, I just started that passion and it was all, it was also a way out for me dealing with, you know, all the tragedy and everything I was dealing with. I always felt at home and at peace and free when I played the game of basketball. And, you know, that I feel now, even when I teach the kids, if you can develop the love for something, whatever that sport is, I think you will have no problem then dealing with the adversity and dealing with failure and dealing with things along that path if you love what you're doing. And that's what basketball was to me. Basketball was love. It was freedom. It was it was my sanctuary and a way out. So I, I just played on the side, the side of the highway. Then after that hoop, we built another one and I put it up on the side of the highway because that was the only bit of pavement in the community. <laughs> and no basketball courts, no playgrounds, no nothing. I think we have one stop sign, no no stop lights. Um, so you know you gotta you gotta have an understanding of how tiny this is, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I just put my hoop up on side the road, and people got used to me just being there all the time, and they'd slow down before they came to my home, and 
you know, everyone was waving and you see any of these social media posts or any of these stories that were done by CBS or TSN or whatever, um, you'd see on the highway where I played. And it's, uh, I think that's all part of my journey. And that's why I think, you know, it, it, it took me so many places because I just wouldn't accept failure along the way. That backdrop of that basketball court on the side of the highway has got to be one of the most I think distinct and memorable places you've seen. I've seen a basketball net anywhere, just with the ocean behind it, uh, the the setting itself on the side of the highway. I mean, I, I have a theory, a fairly simple theory, that anyone who plays basketball, you know, you're at your very best when playing on the net that you grew up on, the one that you spent hours practicing on. In my case, yeah. it was a, a Raptors backboard. My dad had mounted it to the garage, and you know, I knew every angle, every bank shot, every running yeah. jumper. Uh, what what was the home court advantage like on that side of the highway? <laughs> well, when you weren't dodging cars and dealing with the wind, I mean, <laughs> you could you could figure it all out from there. The big thing with me was is the hoop revolutionized after every year because it just kept kept getting better. So I I'd, I'd put it out. I used to keep twisting my ankle because it'd be on the side of the road. So then I built a backdrop. And then the wind, you're always, you were always designing something to deal with the harsh conditions. And then I remember one summer morning, I was after doing this amazing hoop and I put it out about a foot, a foot off the, the main post so I could be able to go in dunk and go under the hoop and things like this, right? Mm-hmm. And not worry about twisting my ankle. So it was about seven o'clock in the morning, we heard this big bang and it was a track, track, tra- transfer trailer truck was after hitting the hoop and with one of their mirrors and it was after knocking over my hoop so my aunt was all scared like oh we don't have the money we're gonna have to fix this guy's truck blah 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 and i was just really pissed off because he beat up my new hoop so i was like (laughs) you better not come back here you know what i mean so anyway um it's it's funny it's funny when you when you think back on it now and the hours and hours and hours i spent there and the big thing was when, when I left and I finally got to college after the path I took to there, I don't want to jump ahead, but the path I took to there when, when CBS and these people were, so when we made the tournament, CBS sent down a camera crew, ESPN sent down a camera crew. They all came to the town. And when they got back and interviewed me, they, the producers were just blown away. They're like, I cannot fathom that you're from this place and you are where you are and you played on this hoop. They were like, this is a movie, this is a document, this is whatever you want. You're like, you know, and I'm like, I'm not ready for that right now. But people were just astonished by, you know, where where I've come from to reach these heights. So it's uh it's definitely a different age now with the social media and all the t- internet and all the technology, but I had none of that back then to try to get recruited or try to chase a dream, right? So you mentioned basketball being your way out. When does it go from that to dreams of college dreams of playing in the ncaa like when does that become uh something within reach it came i don't know if it was ever in reach in my mind but i just had this i just like a sense of adhd or whatever it was like this compulsive disorder to be as good as i could and i used to try to dumb the stuff just to try to get better and like i said there was no internet so everything i was trying or everything i was trying to i'd see people on tv and i would try to copy what they were doing I would see jump soles or things in a magazine. Obviously, didn't have the money to buy them, so I'd build my own or make my own out of old shoes. Just cut them up, tape. You know, like I was doing dumb stuff, right? Just you know, squatting on, squatting all day, doing calf raises on the bathtub, doing, you know, just straight old school things that I'd hear. Oh, this guy did this, and oh, well, I have to do that, and 
then I just, I got pretty good. And, you know, we were beating up on all the teams here and I was averaging 50, 60 points a game. And, you know, I was like, there was this flyer. So I played for my provincial team and there was this flyer they'd send out in the mail for, you know, the following year. And there was, there was a player in St. Thomas Aquinas in Oakville, Andre Sola, that got a scholarship to the state. So I was like, I'm, I'm doing that. And I told my aunt I wanted to move away and I was going to go to this school and she made some calls. And anyway, I, I worked that summer and I, I went up to Ontario to try to get recruited. But when I got up to Ontario, the, the Catholic school went on strike. So I was I was sitting in school, you know, tearing up the guys in school, playing at the local college and stuff, dominating all this stuff. But, you know, I was like, I didn't come up here for this. I came up here to play basketball to get recruited. So I went and made highlight tapes. And uh, now this is a massive school, like 2,500 kids, and they had a video room. So I went and I made a highlight tape, went and bought a bunch of cassettes, like uh, 100 cassettes at Staples. And I videotaped, put all these highlights of myself and a game from here in Newfoundland, and I sent it out to, to a bunch of colleges. So I sent it out to like 100 different schools that I'd like to attend to try to get recruited. Mm-hmm. And I sent it out, and I was getting some letters back, and these coaches wanted to come see me play. And I was like, I, I'm not playing anywhere. So, uh, you know, true random people, I got a, I'd get a game here and there. And then I went to an all-star thing in uh, downtown Toronto. It was called the Prep Stars North American Invitational. We played against IMG and different teams there. And and I got noticed, you know, Syracuse were there. There was a bunch of different schools, but they wanted to follow up and watch me play, and they couldn't. So people would be interested in me, but then they couldn't follow up on me. So we continued We continued on this path, and I followed. AUU Bay basketball was just taking off. Uh-huh. So, so, it, so just inter- interrupt for a second. So they couldn't follow up on you because there was no basketball going on at St. Thomas well, Aquinas, yeah. or, or how come? Yeah, the teachers were on strike, so I had nowhere to play. So yeah. they couldn't see me play. So, you know, they saw me in this tournament with a random team, played well. The interest was there, so they obviously want to follow up on you. The other coaches want to see you. So they'd be contacting me, when can we see you play? And I'm like, I the teachers are on strike. We're waiting for them to come off. So then that had all died down. So then, you know, I just kept training and working out. The teachers were telling me the strike's going to be over. And then when the strike was over, it was too late. So we just had a couple exhibition tournaments. And, you know, from those tournaments, I scored 35, 40. And that was a big deal up there. So people were watching me and following me. But now it was late in the year. So I went, I wasn't good enough for the ABC or the Nike camp. So there was another one in New Jersey. Um, a coach took four or five of us down to that. And I went, it was called Atlantic Cape Camps. And I was the MVP of that camp. And they came to watch me. They left Adidas and, and Nike five-star. And they came over to watch me in that in the all-star game. And I got MVP of that as well. And I must have had 30, 40 offers then. But a lot of them were, this was late. This is in July. So a lot of them were... You know, we're looking at you for next year. You know, there were some smaller schools at the time, like Creighton and Baylor and Richmond and these type of schools, which are, you know, great programs there now. And uh, Hawaii was there, but Syracuse was the big one. They were putting me from since the North American Invitational earlier in the year, they were putting me in a prep school. And I was fine with that because it would have gave me another year to develop. Mm-hmm. And then in Pennsylvania, and it would allow me to, you know, I'd be in the heart of basketball and, you know, a full program for a full year based on with the strike. I felt this was the best thing for me. So then I decided to go out to Hawaii just on a visit. I was like, man, I'll never have a chance to go to Hawaii. Let's just go out there and check it out. 
So anyway, long story short, I go out to Hawaii and I sign there and the rest is history. <laughs> it's too hard to resist once you get out there? Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, the coaches, you know, they find wine and dine you. And this was my first visit. So I'm from a town, like I said, 20 people. And I trust everybody. And if you read my book, a lot of the mishaps and things have gone wrong in my life is from trusting people, you know. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was dropping off an iPhone to return to FedEx. FedEx was closed, but the driver was out in the yard. He knew who I was, asked me about my book, asked me about basketball. I said, yeah, you guys are open. He's like, no, but I was like, oh, he's like, I'll take it for you. I'll drop it off. So hopefully he drops it off on Monday. But if not, I'm on the hook for a $2,000 iPhone. But anyway, <laughs> it's, just, it's just who I am. That's just the way I've been raised. That's just a small town mentality. And a lot of Newfoundlanders are that way. They would do anything to help you and they trust you. And even when you go to the big cities, you probably trust the wrong people. And that's kind of been the trend throughout my life. Hmm. Back to the, the significance of basketball in your life and talking about what it served in your life, just being a, a way out or an outlet. I mean, what do you what do you feel if you can describe it, picking up a basketball? Like what's happening between you know how the rest of the day might have been going to when you step onto a court, you get a, a basketball in your hands. The first thing would be joy. I, I I never warm up with music or any of these things. I don't need to drink Red Bull. I don't. I I just look at all the things I did when I was a kid. I look at. I feel. I love to have the feel of the ball in my hands. The sound it makes. The sound when you swish it. The you know when I'm playing by myself, it's, it's me against the hoop and how many shots I can make and how, you know, the type of things I'm working on and it's just a challenge, but then it's also, you know, just the, the, the freedom and the joy of just, just playing the game. And it's, it's something that's, I don't know, like people might have this when they're painting or when they're hunting or when they're, you know, playing another sport or music might do this to people or basketball basketball has always done that for me. So it's been, it's been that, you know, that highlight or that sanctuary, no matter what I'm dealing with, when I step between those lines for that time, I can block anything out. Mm -hmm. So you end up going to Hawaii, you, you get the bleach blonde hair as you go out there. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and then you go to March Madness twice. I mean, what, what was that experience like? Uh, well, that, was, that was amazing. I mean, when you're, when you're in a uh, Hawaii was an amazing school, but to try to get to the NBA, it's not the best school because you're out on an island. And like you said, when you said about playing on your Raptors hoop, well, when you're playing on your home baskets in front of your home crowd, you you predominantly have your best games. Well, a lot of scouts are not going to go out to Hawaii to see one game. So they come out for tournaments or they catch me on the backswing when we're playing Fresno or playing someone else, because then they can do five, six, seven games in a road trip, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the, the being out in Hawaii was amazing. I mean, the culture, the people, the lifestyle, the island was was amazing. And then taking a small program like that to New Heights was was really special. But what hurt us when we got to the tournament is is what helps the ACC schools or your big your big schools we got there and you're bombarded by the media and the lights and the cameras and everything, you know, you're like, Holy God, you know what I mean? Whereas they see it nearly every night, like Duke, Duke sees that every night. And these big schools see that every night. Well, Hawaii only sees that when you're in a tournament. So that's always an advantage for the bigger schools, but it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, it definitely put me on the map. I mean, the tournament before that 
my freshman year, I was I was getting ready to transfer because I was barely playing. And in the last 10 games, the coach had no choice but to play me. And I just skyrocketed. So, you know, I was I was the sixth man. I came into that tournament. We were fifth, sixth seed. We ended up winning in the finals. I scored 28 and got MVP at the tournament. So rewind back two months ago and I wasn't even playing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it sports is a roller coaster, even when you never get too high and you never get too low. And, and that's the mind frame that you need to be in. And that's what I carry through my almost 20 year career in the sense of, you know, you're fighting for a common goal. You're striving when you're on the top, everyone's trying to knock you off. When you're on the bottom, you're fighting to get to the top. So you can never get too low and too emotionally high and, and you got to stay even keel and that's what it's like in college but the difference when you're in college you're only 18 19 20 years old you don't even know who you are or what you are you know you're still trying to find yourself hence the blonde hair corn rolls bald head you know i had a lot <laughs> a lot going on you, you talk about the roller coaster the up and down of uh, of the game and and just life you're out there in hawaii things are on an upward trajectory you come home to newfoundland and and your uncle Junior passes away. I mean, what what is that like to then um, again uh, adjust to and process and recover from? Well, that one was tough, right? Um, like I, I went in depth in my book on how these things really made me feel. I mean, my whole career and even my whole life, and I think it's people in general. When you deal with something, you you kind of bury it. Pardon the pun, but you bury it. You fight and you fight stronger to, you know, to overcome what you just dealt with or to not let that happen again. And I did that through tragedy, through failure, through injuries, through everything. So in my book, I just unleashed and, and really felt told what it, what it made me feel. But with Uncle Junior, it was, it was devastating because this man was, was everything to me. He was my father after losing my father. He was, you know, my my right hand I was his right hand because he had a stroke so his whole left side of his body basically uh wasn't really functioning correctly so we did everything together and I was kind of like his hand so that we had a special bond and he took me to all my games and you know we we did so many things together so when I came home we were out fishing um because he he was fisherman so we were out to get to quota and he wasn't feeling well and he came in and he never gets out of the boat we usually do the work he's more so the captain but he gets up on the wharf and then he's just there and he sings out my name as he collapsed. And you know, we knew right then he was gone. And, you know, at that age, now I'm a man. Now I've been out on my own. Now I understand life. Now I can really process what this really means. And it, it just collapsed me, you know, and it was, it was one of the toughest things I've ever dealt with. And then, you know, it just never, you never, you never get over these things. You know, I'll never forget that image. I'll never forget that voice and I'll never forget him. So you just learn to deal with it and move on and function. And that's how I can describe that one. So um, shortly after that, I decided to go with Canada basketball and play in the under 21s. Um, And I did that. I did that to get away, to be honest, Um, because up to this point, I've been turning down Canada basketball. And I felt that he, he would want me to do it. And I just also felt that it was a way out. So I did that to, to get away from home and to get away from, from that whole situation and, and just to go play ball again. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was devastating. What was it like putting on that 
Team Canada jersey. I mean, uh, you went on, to, if that was the first time, you went on to play for, you know, 12 years for Team Canada. Yeah, I think I played more than that as well. I played almost a decade and a half for, for Team Canada or in some way been involved with the program. I mean, it's been some of the highlights of my career, just playing for your country and 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 wearing the red and white and, and representing. And you're, you're like, I've had some relationships and teammates there that are some of my best friends to this day. And you know, that you can't, the camaraderie with the guys and the things that you build and, and fighting for that common goal. I mean, to try to get to the Olympics or try to make the world every summer and, and putting everything else on hold to do that. There's a special bond you create with some of these, some of your teammates and just, just the goal and playing for your country. I mean, it's amazing. I've, you know, it, it was, it was special when it happened. I mean, I, I hit some, some tough times with Canada basketball towards the end with injuries and, you know, we're, we're not in a good place there now, me and them, because they didn't help, you know, they didn't cover my insurance, basically, and I lost a ton of money. So other than that, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I, I get I get everything. I'm sure you're going to ask me, but I get everything why guys play and why they don't. I get what they got involved. It's, it's hard for a guy now to come out and play. And firsthand, I can tell you, I mean, I lost a million dollar contract because of that injury I had. Um, so you take these NBA guys that got millions and millions of dollar contracts. If you come out and you get hurt with Team Canada and there's no insurance there to protect you, well, you're jeopardizing your life, your family, your your family after that. Mm -hmm. So there, there's so many things. So it's easy for people to judge and say, oh, that guy should play or this guy should play when they don't really know what's going on behind the doors. And then on the same point, I've always played, you know, so it's it's a lot to sacrifice, meaning it's not so much the sacrifice of playing or giving up your time. It's, it's the gamble you take that if you do get hurt and people always argue, Oh, well, you can get hurt anywhere. Yes. But if you get hurt with your team, they'll protect you because you got hurt with your team and your coaching and your staff. If you get hurt with team Canada and you're in the middle of uh, one of these crazy countries, well, you know, maybe you'll never recover the same, maybe, you know, so and now maybe your NBA team mightn't have your back because they told you not to go play. So there's a lot of things that it's easy for us on the outside to judge. But after what happened to me in 2012 or 13 with, with an injury, I, I completely understand why guys don't play. Mm. I want to backtrack to 2003 for a moment. Uh, you're coming out of Hawaii, you declare for the NBA draft. You know, it's the same year as LeBron, Wade, Melo, Chris Bosh, yeah, all those guys. guys. Uh, yeah. You've got a party planned in Toronto, media are there. I mean, what's going through your head with every pick coming off the board? Well, that was a freaking nightmare. I'm not going to sugarcoat that one for you. I mean, I was a, I graduated as a junior. I had a senior year of college left, but I, I got my degree in sports management. Um, so I was kind of ready for that next step. I'm not going to put this on anybody. It was a decision I made, but I had some bad advice. Um, again, that's in my book on trusting the wrong people and trusting an agent when I probably, if I had to have a real agent or a good agent for that matter, um, or Frick could have been you, <laughs> anybody that could give me a bit, a bit better advice. I could have, uh, I probably could have went back from my senior year and then see what was happening. And, and even based on logistics, I mean, that's probably been the best draft ever. So if your agent had any idea what he was doing, he would have said, Carl, just go back to school. You know, you got a year to get better, get stronger. You already graduated. Just focus on playing basketball, work on your master's. And, you know, the, the next year's draft cannot be as strong as this one. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, I didn't have that. I trusted the wrong people. They planned a party for me. There was 20, 30 camera crews because I was a big deal, you know, coming out. And we were at the Indian Motorcycle downtown. And every pick, they all turned on their bright camera lights and shined them in my eyes. And the guy now somebody else. So I can only imagine, you know, you can't imagine what that did to me. Um, you know, you got 60 picks of failure. And that seemed like it lasted a year every time, you know, every couple of minutes between those picks and then the buzz gets negative and everybody's there talking and to make it worse, my agent didn't even have his phone. It was dead and the teams are calling my phone. And I'm like, yeah, just take me. I'm disappointed. I'll go wherever. They're like, no, no, we have no picks. We just want you to come to summer league. I'm like, call my agent. They're like, no, he's, we tried. His phone is not answering. And I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. So it was, uh, let's just say it was, uh, it was a rough, rocky night. And, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit easier. Let's just say that. I'm not, <laughs> looking, I'm not looking for pity. I'm not looking for anything. You know, you should never have a draft party if you're not guaranteed to be drafted. Go with your friends and family in the quietness of a home or a hotel. You don't need to make this big skeptical because I'm the kid in the middle that's got to recover from it. So these guys had no clue what they were doing, never should have done it. And I was just a pawn in the game, but I was the guy that had to deal with the heartache. So, you know, you live and you learn and, you know, hopefully there's plenty of kids out there that can learn from my mistakes. And hopefully there's plenty of agents and other people that can also learn from these mistakes and, and a right way and a wrong way to do things because these type of events can, can destroy a person if you let it, if you're not strong enough. But luckily I was strong enough. So uh, you end up overseas, Italy, Croatia, Spain, Germany, uh, have a great career over there in all those different countries. Uh, yeah. And those are some basketball, you know, fanatic countries too. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What, what is the wildest basketball arena you've played in? Well, first, I'll just go through them briefly. I mean, Croatia was, first I went to Italy. I mean, that was just a cultural shock, a life shock, a language barrier. You know, you, you're, you're still focused on getting released from the NBA and not, you know, not achieving that. And now you're thrown into this environment and, you know, you're, you're trying to process everything and you got to be open-minded. So that was a tough year just to accomplish. My second year was much better in, in Croatia. I led that league in scoring, read the Adriatic league in scoring and really came on the map and had a lot of NBA summer camp and different things coming up from that. Um, it was, I was coached by Dragon Petrovic's brother. I played in the arena where he started mm. Um it was amazing. You know, you're a rock star in these towns, you know, uh, you're, you're, when you go to a grocery store, they're even telling you how to play or telling you ways to correct your thing. <laughs> it's, it's a whole different animal. People have no idea. And then from there, um, I went on and played in Spain for eight, nine, 10 years. And Spain is the best country outside the NBA. Um, won a championship there, led that league in scoring for years or top two and three every year. So went on to have a successful time there in Spain. Some injuries and different things hurt. Some NBA options I had in between. But, you know, that's that's the journey. That's part of it. I went then. I was in Puerto Rico. I was in Alba, Berlin. And I went to Greece. So now talking about Greece, if you want to talk about crazy, they were some crazy, crazy, crazy fans. So they were, they were that bad that they couldn't travel. So when you went on the road, it was only home fans allowed. So I'll tell you one story, and again, it's in my, in my book, but um, one story is we're on the road and we're warming up and our fans stormed the arena, two, three hundred of them, 
the security all come out, riot gear. They throw tear gas. We're warming up. Our eyes are burning. We had to go outside. They cleared the gym. They started back up about 45, 50 minutes later. And, you know, we go in. And I'm I'm there not caring because I was getting ready for Christmas break because I was on a, a almost like a two-month contract. And then I had an option to decide if I wanted to go back. So I was going home to see my family for 10 days. So I went back in and I'm talking noise and, you know, I was on fire because I, I was like, I don't really care what's going on. I'm going home tomorrow. So I'm talking to the crowd and one guy took a pee in a bottle and he threw the pee, the pee bottle at me and I'm, I'm ducking it. <laughs> but then all the security come out and they cover me and they take me off the court. They're like, English, no talk, no talk. Very dangerous, very dangerous today. So we'd have certain places and I'd always had to have security with me. And, you know, they'd tell me arenas that I was like, okay, it was safe to be yourself or today, you know, you got to err on the side of caution. Don't talk, don't get into it. So let's just say I, I lived for those moments and they were pretty special. And, um, you know, you, you can't, you can't script it. You know, you can't, you can't decide how it goes down. You can't decide the way you're going to play. Everybody wants to play great, but that's not always the case. No one wants to make mistakes. No one wants to be cut. No one wants to get hurt, but they're all part of it. And that's what makes the journey. And that's what makes the story. 2017, you decide to come home. You know, the National yeah. Basketball League of Canada has been around for a while. You, you make your way back to St. John's and league MVP honors, you know, team goes to the finals. What was it like coming home? What, what prompted the decision to come home? I mean, I had some options to go back overseas. I was actually in Greece um, for a team there, Olympiacos, which is one of the best in Europe. And I went there just to train because in the back of my mind, I wanted to come home, but I almost, uh, I was there just there training and they got to love me and they were about to offer me a contract and a big man went down and it's like, we're going to follow you, but we want to, we need to get a big man. Cause you're only allowed two Americans. Right. So there's always these rules that people don't understand about Europe. So anyway, I came home and I was in great shape and I was using that as a negotiation tactic as well. So the hype was building, but, you know, the team itself wasn't, there was only like 600 tickets sold. And I mean, I was on the news more than the actual team because I'm from here and this is where my journey started. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of fans here and right across Canada from my time with Team Canada. So, you know, they finally come on a Wednesday, they came to an agreement. Um, by Friday, they had like almost sold out. Then we went down the road and I played in PEI and struggling the whole game but hit like the last seven but we're down two with 10 seconds i walked the coach threw up something i scrapped it told him said no i'm coming here give me the ball right there so anyway did the play uh the guy comes out hitting his chest and i'm shut you down blah 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 i looked at him and the ref and i told him what i was gonna do i did it and then i hit the shot and the ref's like i tell you said it he said he was gonna do it <laughs> So like that story got getting around and, you know, cause I'm a lot older than these guys. And obviously this is not the level that I played at my whole career. So um, even though I was older, you know, I could dominate in that league. So then we went on to the next game and I had 38 and blah, blah, blah. blah and the buzz kept buzzing at home till we got, we were winning and the buzz kept going. And then by the time we got home, it was sold out and it's only 6,000. But for a place like this, that's a hockey town that nobody thought would ever, Two weeks ago, they only had 600 tickets sold, and now all of a sudden, Carl joins, comes home, and there's just this amazing buzz. And to be honest with you, I've played in front of 40,000, 50,000, but when you're playing in front of 6,000 and you've known somehow or seen somehow most of them, 
uh, four or five thousand, there's a whole different level of accountability. Let's just call it that, mm-hmm. you know. And then I'm coming with all this hype, so now you got to live up to it. So it was uh, it was definitely special to come back. It was great for my kids. It was great for my family. It was great for a lot of my fans that just followed me for so long that they could come out. And it was it was great for basketball, not just here in Newfoundland, but right across, but especially here at home. And you know, it gave a lot of kids something to strive for and you know a little bit of hope to say you know if I work hard I can be better than that guy and that that's that's pretty special when you think about it mm. you've got the book out you know you, you've got uh, your camps for for kids the game of basketball has brought you so much I mean what what gives you the greatest joy today my kids <laughs> hands down will be my kids and my family I mean um, I look at my kids now my my daughter is the age I was when I lost my parents and I look at her older two siblings and I just, I just want to be a great father. I want to be a great father. I want to be a great role model for, for our kids in our country right across. And, you know, I, I, it was tough to do my book. It was tough to put it all out there and unleash everything I was dealing with, but I'm hoping that it'll be a way out for people that are dealing with similar things and also a guiding life for people to say, you know, if I work hard, I can be better than that guy or I can chase my dreams anywhere. Look at the things that he's accomplished and look where he comes from. So that that's all I can ask for. And for me personally, I mean, you want to be the best father you can and you want to be an amazing role model. And I think I can be that for so many people because, you know, the Steve Nash's of the world were that for me, you know, but when you look at, when you're on TV and you're looking at LeBron James, yes, he's a great role model, but not everybody's born six, eight, 265 like it's just you know so hopefully you can look at someone like me or you know people like me and say hey i can be better than that guy with a bit of hard work and dedication and perseverance and that's that's all my story is about you know it's about rising up when you're dealt with you're dealt a bad hand you know and and that's all i can that's all i can hope for so that's it now um you know basketball has been great to me I've, I've had so many relationships with it right, right across the, my whole career. And I'm sure this is just the starting point for what's next. I think so too. Carl, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate right, it. Man. No, thank you. It was a pleasure chatting with you and I wish you all the best. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Carl, his book, Chasing a Dream, is out in stores now. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, rate, review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. If you really love the show, head to the shop section on the Story Untold website, pick up some merch from there. It helps keep this thing going over 80 episodes deep. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.